This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark L. Susser. For a full year, we've been looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels, put together in one chronological flow. We're now into the last week of Jesus' ministry leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. And Ben, we've looked at his triumphal entry, which is on the Sunday prior to the crucifixion, the cleansing of the temple on a Monday, some teaching around the temple on Tuesday, teaching out at the Mount of Olives on Wednesday, and now we're up to Thursday. In fact, we're into Thursday, going into Thursday evening, which in the Jewish day was sundown was a new day, right? It was so that's this is the last day because by the next morning he would be hanging on the cross and we're at the famous last supper that Jesus has with his disciples so let's just jump in here we're going to take follow the Luke narrative a little bit and then we'll jump over to John then back to Luke I believe and let's take a look at at Jesus really readying his disciples for his death through this activity of the Passover meal together. In Luke chapter 22, we'll begin in verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Yeah, I look at these stories, Ben, sometimes, and I think these these are these are like the instructions I used to get in my first church when I was pastor, thirty five, thirty six years ago, and I'd I'd call people. It was before the internet, before computers, and so I'd call people up to come for a visit, and they'd give me directions to their house, and they'd say, "Well, go down to the old." Jones Barn, of course, it's not there anymore. It burned down 20 years ago. And then, and then turn northwest there and go down to the, the Smith's cows. You'll see them, unless they're milking, then they won't be like, there are all kinds of strange directions that I would get. And Jesus keeps giving these directions to people. You'll find a, gu- a guy carrying a jar of water. He can't be the only guy in Jerusalem that's hauling water around. So, uh, how does this how does this work with these instructions? Do we have the Cliff Notes version? Is that what we have going on here, or is the guy wearing a shirt? You know that says, "You know, I'm Bob. Ask me." Like, <laughs> how is Jesus able to get these specific requests made by these very mm, foggy directions? I might say. Yeah, there there might be an aspect I think to where it's just kind of the succinct piece of the narrative. There was probably more uh, that is said, um, but. It, yeah, inherent in it, it's like you'll know when you when you see him. So, do you think Jesus had gone ahead and talked to this guy and said, "Hey, get, can I have your room?" And like, how did all this? How you, how would you guess this work? We don't have it, but nah. what's your guess? I don't know. 
I beats me, man. I I think just as a you know, he's omniscient, he's all knowing, and so uh, he just he knew the dude would say yes. So when your mom had a a big meal to prepare, did she get a hold of you boys and say, "All right, I I need I, I want you out of my hair. I want you to go out and play football and go do something." Or I need you in here, and I need you to peel potatoes, and I need you to set the table, and it's going to be a big old family gathering. Like, what was your role in all of that? Yeah, we weren't kicked out of the house by any means. We were we were there to peel potatoes and set the set the table, um, and so yeah, we we were included in on the meal prep. You know, it's like I tell people, like being born in South Louisiana, you were born with a fishing pole in one hand and a spatula in the other. <laughs> well, that uh, makes for an interesting picture. So here we have Jesus that he's sending out these two guys, Peter and John. And Peter and John will be the two primary figures at the beginning of the book of Acts when Jesus dies and resurrected and ascends into heaven. And then he hands the church to them, and they're they're the two that get the thing going. But as part of their preparation, they've got to get a meal ready and go find this guy and and prepare for this pass. And it says they prepared the Passover. Perhaps personally, they were getting the elements ready, the things that were part of the meal that were there and and ready. They, they were setting up the room. And they were hiring the painter to come paint the famous picture. I don't, you know, they, they were doing all kinds of stuff, you know, uh, they, they were getting it ready for the meal. Interesting here in verse 11, when it says the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Clear back in Luke chapter two, same gospel, Luke chapter two, when Jesus was born, the Bible says, His mother Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the exact same word that is used. It's the word, the Greek word kataluma. It is used here for the what we know as the upper room, and it is used back in Luke two with what we traditionally say the inn. But the word actually means a guest room. I think the latest NIV translation gets it pretty close to right. And it's a, it's a part of a house. It's a part of someone's home that they had. I, I find it interesting that Jesus entered the world through a kataluma, through a, someone's guest room. And his last time he was in a home where he wasn't under arrest and all these kind of things, his last time was in someone's Kataluma, day day one and day the end, he is in a borrowed Kataluma, in a borrowed guest room of someone else. The son of man, he said, has nowhere to lay his head and, and sort of lived out in his life. I, I wonder you know, if, if there's any significance as Luke is, is writing this narrative to say that Jesus began this way and he ends this way. I don't have any evidence to say that that's a, an intentional design by by the Lord to do it in that way, or by Luke to even write it down in that way. But it makes for a curious question for me, at the very least. What's your what's your reaction to all that uh, stuff? <laughs> now I want to go do a word study on Cataluma to see how many times it's actually used in Luke's gospel. Um, 
if there if this is only one of two times, then there's I would say there's definitive significance uh, to the use of the term uh, guest room and how that applies ultimately to Jesus entering the world and preparing to exit. Uh, there would be significance there. And, uh, and so, yeah, as soon as we're done with this podcast, I am going to go and bust out uh, my Greek lectionary to see the use of kataluma in, uh, in Luke, because now I'm really curious, because I've never thought about it before. Well, it's, it makes an interesting thing. You know, in Luke 2, we often, we often, because we've been told there was no room in the inn, we picture that there was a, a mean old innkeeper and he kept them away, so Jesus had to go be born in a barn. But the word that is used there seems to indicate that he was born in a place that was, was a hospitable culture, and every home had a guest room. They expected people to come and stay with them. So he was born perhaps in a borrowed room, an upper room, because the guest rooms typically were upstairs in the normal construction, as I understand it, and the people slept downstairs among their livestock, I mean, in, in another room and, and so forth. And th- that he would exit in the same way is interesting to me. There are other words, I believe the word, this is risky on a podcast, but I believe the word is pandoxeon. It's a Greek word which is better translated for an inn that could have been used back then. In fact, that is the word that Luke uses, if I'm not uh, mistaken, for the story of the Good Samaritan, when the person finds him and puts him on a donkey and takes him to an inn. So it just seems to be an interesting piece that Jesus is perhaps beginning his life on earth and ending his natural life on earth in the same kind of space. Not in the same place. One was in Bethlehem. One was just a few miles away in Jerusalem, but in in a similar kind of place. Nonetheless, he's there with his disciples in this place. They've prepared the Passover meal. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the Passover meal and and what that would look like in that day and, and what would be expected of the Passover meal for the celebration of the remembrance of the Passover in Egypt. Give a, a few-minute version of what comes out of your mind in that, with, going all the way back to Moses a couple thousand years earlier. Yeah, obviously the link uh, to the Passover lamb, who which images uh, ultimately— uh, Christ himself points to Christ, and we think about the uh, um, when God pours out his wrath on the Egyptians, that the, the door frames covered in the, the lamb's blood uh, passes over the Israelite homes, preserving the life of, of those uh, children. And so, yeah, it hearkened, you know, obviously hearkening back to that and remembrance of that. Um, crazy enough, every time I consider the Passover meal, I think it was my second year out of seminary, the church I was at desperately wanted to do a Passover meal, and I agreed uh, to do that and and basically to help facilitate it. And uh, a couple of people who had brought um, the the desire to do the Passover meal to me, I had wrongly assumed that they were going to script it out, and I found out the night before that they were not scripting it out, and I was up till six o'clock in the morning which meant I did not sleep scripting out the Passover meal. And oddly enough, my wife and I were talking about this uh, probably a week or two ago, reflecting on and, and remembering that moment. I think it was the first uh, moment uh, 
in my life as a pastor that I was uh, visibly uh, frustrated and annoyed um, preparing for the Did Passover. Did you act it out and put on the full garb, you know, and dress up like No, a- no, we didn't do that. We kind of had a, a taste test of the different elements that were uh, that were available for the Passover meal. And then a dear friend of ours uh, cooked the lamb, um, which as I've said on a previous podcast, I enjoyed lamb. So that was, that was awesome. To bring in a real lamb and slaughter it in front of the people is really acted out. We, we did not go no. full in. Right. Yeah. We did not drain the lamb's blood uh, or anything of that nature. Uh, but we did, we did eat well, uh, that night. And it turned out actually to be a great, a great event and an opportunity to reflect upon how, again, as, a, as I often say, as we often say, how the old Testament itself all of it, in essence, points to the coming Messiah. So how the Passover lamb points to the coming of Christ and really the significance of him dying during this week. Um, it's probably a good thing that you didn't bring in a real, a real lamb. It, reminds, it just reminds me of a story that several years ago, it's been a long time ago now, that my wife Lisa was directing a big musical and she wanted to have live lambs or sheep or something on the stage and contacted a Presbyterian pastor who was raising them, and he agreed to loan us his animal. And as the whole choir was up there doing the performance, the little lamb decided to poop on the stage. And, <laughs> That's and awesome. So, and then, you know, we were moving around a little bit, you know, and, and, and we weren't going to be standing in one place moving around, and she could see us— um, smearing things so she just took she calmly took a bulletin and laid it on top of the <laughs> of the droppings and we went the show must go on so maybe it was a good thing you never you just can't trust these sheep so jesus yeah in fact it, the bible says in um over in first corinthians chapter 5 verse 7 it says for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed so in this act, Jesus not only is celebrating the Passover and, sac- and as a symbol of sacrificing the lamb, but he becomes the lamb. He is the Passover lamb for us. It's a pretty powerful moment. Over in, in John, John adds an, a piece to the narrative of Jesus before they eat the meal, of, of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It was customary before they would have a a meal, and especially something as significant as a Passover meal, that they would be cleansed, that that someone would would prepare them. They they walked on these dusty roads and and sandals. Someone would wash their their feet and and prepare their hands and prepare them, and they'd be ceremonially clean, but also physically clean as, as someone would welcome them into the home. And apparently this had not happened. It's in John chapter 13, where it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. 
So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There's a little bit more to the narrative there, but I just want to stop and, and, and picture this scene. Jesus' ultimate act of humility, it's a servant's job. This ultimate act of humility for the, the one who came from God, who is returning to God, for the Son of God himself to kneel and do that. What's the significance for this act? Not only for the disciples, but for us as we, as we interact with the Scripture. I think that it, it images the servant heart that God desires uh, from us, that we are to reflect uh, Jesus's humility. The other aspect of this, which is oftentimes oddly to me, um, kind of neglected when this story or, or when this piece of the narrative is preached on, is that it's reflecting the ultimate cleansing that's about to happen by the blood of Christ. And so the focus oftentimes uh, goes to the the humility, the the sacrificial nature of Jesus's act that he takes this incredibly humble position a, as a servant um, in order to you know to clean uh, their feet. And obviously, uh, the lead in in every sermon I ever hear about that, the lead in to that uh, piece of it is how disgusting the roads are, and they're not exactly walking around in boots; they're walking around barefoot or in sandals. And so their feet are horribly disgusting, and Jesus humbles himself to wash their feet, to clean uh, their feet. And while, yeah, imaging, again, imaging the servant heart of Christ and what we're called to image, the reality is, is that it's pointing to, um, just as the, at the end of the Passover meal, when he breaks the bread, he, he takes the cup, the, the washing of the feet is, are, is also pointing to the ultimate cleansing of sin that's coming uh via his work upon the cross. That's so true. In fact, let's let's go back to that piece of the narrative in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 38, and, and we'll see exactly what he does there with the, the meal itself. So this now is back in Luke 22, verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. you know, ben, followers of Christ celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six reminds us, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why is it important for us to proclaim the Lord's death? 
Because his death is the means to our salvation. Um, and to do it, one of the one of the aspects of this too, again, that in some ways is neglected, is that when we partake of, of what we call communion, we're doing it as a corporate body. And so it's a reminder to each of us of the grace that has been poured out to us through the death of Christ. Um, that, you know, not to be cliche about it, but the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all in equal need of Jesus's salvific work. We're all in equal need of his death uh, upon the cross for our salvation. And in that, it's a reminder to ourselves as we, as we partake together, uh, we are reminded then of, uh, as, as God has poured out this equal grace to us, that we are all uh, through Christ reconciled uh, to God. And in that reconciliation, there's a reconciliation that comes between brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are joined together by the blood of Christ and that we are bound together by the blood of Christ. And so one of the aspects of communion that's, that's not practiced really anymore is that before communion was partaken in the early church or, or taken of in the early church, there would be the, you know, the idea of the passing of the peace. And so if there was anything if there was any uh, disagreement, if there was a need for reconciliation between brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ, people would go and pursue that reconciliation before going to the altar together to receive communion. And so when we receive communion, we're reminded of the reconciliation that's taken place between us and the Father through the work of Christ. We're also reminded of our disposition as brothers and sisters in Christ who have experienced this forgiveness of God through the work of Christ, that we are called to that same reconciliation with one another. So our hearts are always bent uh, toward that. And so there's a practical outworking that happens uh, in the in the presence of, of taking communion as the corporate body as well. It's interesting that even as you say that and how important that is, even at this first gathering, we call it the Last Supper, but it would be the first communion gathering, I suppose. There were those who were there who didn't have that heart of reconciliation you're right. exactly talking about. Because Jesus goes on in verse 21 and says, The hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Speaking of Judas. And then down in verse 31, He's speaking to Peter, Simon Peter, and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has sifted you as wheat. On down to verse 34, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So Jesus looks at, at and, he, and he also says to all of them, you'll all abandon me. So he's looking around this table, and the image that you've just described is accurate. That's what is, it should be. It's the coming together of the body of Christ, the family of God in this moment of reconciliation and making things right. And still in the midst of this, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest up in yeah. verse 24. They, you got people that are going to betray him. People are going to deny him. People are going to abandon him. And yet he still allows them to partake in the bread and the cup. What's that say to us? It is a uh, tangible picture of the immeasurable goodness of God toward us. 
that even in the presence of our sin, in the presence of all our knucklehead acts, pride, whatever it might be, God pursues us uh, in Christ and seeks to reconcile us to uh, himself. And, uh, and to see that tangibly being played out by Jesus uh, during the Last Supper, knowing that, you know, that's the thing that always, you know, just, I don't know if it amazes me or, or what it is, but I'm, I'm just captivated by it, is that the anguish of the cross is near. Jesus knows what he's about to suffer, and in the midst of that, he is persistently ministering to these guys persistently calling them to himself and uh yeah it's just it's a powerful powerful moment historical moment he he doesn't give up on us which is a great comfort to me yeah and when i have my bonehead moments i'm not eliminated from his love which is the meaning of grace that i'm reminded of how much he loves me and we can express to others how much he loves you. Yeah. Because you can look at this gathering around this table and none of them really get it. They're, they're still making it about themselves. But in retrospect, we can learn from them, I hope, and draw into this the, the deep meaning of Christ being our sacrifice for our sins, even as they're sinning while they're eating with him. Right. Yeah, pretty powerful. Pretty pretty powerful message. So this is the the moment when Jesus is with them for the last time in an enclosed environment until after his resurrection. And then he's going to go from here out to the Mount of Olives and spend some time with them. And next time, actually, we're going to take a look at his promise of the Holy Spirit for his disciples and for us as well. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. You know, we're, we're 43 weeks into this 52-week study, and if you are just now coming onto this, just start where we are. And it's an odd time of the year that we're talking about Holy Week topics, but it's always good to be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ for us. So next time, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Until then, may God bless.